0: I uh, started in ministry, uh, this may be hard for you to believe, back in 1987, and I know I don't look that old, but I started as a student pastor, a youth minister in 1987, and when I became a youth minister, there weren't many youth ministers. I was a college student in a church that was about an hour away, a big church, ran about 800, and uh, they had six or seven full-time pastors, a recreation pastor, and education pastor, and a children's pastor. They'd never had a youth pastor. And so they were beginning to try to branch out and they called me in for an interview and uh, they really didn't even know what they were looking for because youth ministry was new. Those of you that grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, especially early 80s, late 70s, you know that youth ministry used to be part of the music ministry, that the youth ministry is part of youth choir. If you were in the youth ministry, you were part of the youth choir. You went on choir trips and choir tours and and you had a big youth choir. And So that's how youth ministry got taken care of. And about mid-80s, people began to realize especially in larger churches, that we need to do something with students. That We need to more than just babysit, more than just try to keep them occupied. We need to focus on them. And I was in college at that time and had a heart to ministry, didn't know what I was going to do. But I felt like I needed to work with students after what God had done in my life as a student, and I wanted to do that. So I went and met with them, and and we just kind of fleshed out what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And uh, since it was so new, they really didn't have a job description. And so as we talked about what my job was and what my role was, basically they just said, as we go along, you can create your own job description. And, you know, I gave them some of my ideas and they talked about some of their ideas and and they just threw me in a room and said, welcome to staff and and you're going to start. Well, if any of you has ever had a job or ever had a responsibility where you didn't have clearly defined roles, where you didn't have a job description, where you didn't have responsibilities defined, you know that that is just an avenue for a mess, that there is going to inevitably be some conflict. And so I was 19 years old, uh, you know, 20 years old, I guess, at the time, and I thought, you know, I can overcome all this. And I got in and started doing youth ministry very quickly because I didn't have any limited role, any limited responsibility. I began to cross over into other people's turfs. And in church work, that means I began to get into some of their uh, roles and responsibilities myself. You see, the education minister came to me and he said, Rusty, you can't be in charge of youth Sunday school and youth Bible study and the teachers and the volunteers there because that's my job. And then the recreation minister came to me and said, Rusty, I noticed you were doing stuff in the gym, and you were doing recreational activities, and you were having some of these games and stuff. Rusty, that's my job. And then the music minister came to me, and the music minister said, Rusty, you can't do anything in the summer because I can't have camp or other things interfere with my choir tour. And so for a couple of years, this was a huge frustration for me because I didn't know what I could do, what I couldn't do without stepping on toes. And I was trying to develop a ministry. And and I have to tell you, the the only way it really worked out was when those guys left to go to another church, instead of hiring somebody new, they came to me and said, hey, you were doing such a good job with the education, you're going to be youth in education, and they said, the recreation minister left, and they said, hey, you're doing such a great job of recreation. You're going to be youth, recreation, and education. And the music minister left, and they said, we're not that desperate, okay? <laughs> but it was frustrating. It was frustrating to me, and, and in that same frustration, I think so many Christians have that same kind of frustration when it comes to spiritual warfare, We hear people talk about spiritual warfare, and we hear people mention what spiritual warfare is all about, but we don't understand where we fit in. We don't understand what our role is. We don't understand what our responsibilities are. A couple of weeks ago, when we started looking at this in Ephesians chapter 6, we learned that there is a spiritual battle going on in the heavenlies, that there is a war taking place in the heavenly realm. And so when you read that, you think, well, Pastor, if it's taking place in the heavenly realm, what do I have to do with that? Where do I fit in to the heavenly realm? And at the same time, you have these militant Christians that are all gung-ho spiritual warfare. I mean, they're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. You know the kind I'm talking about. I mean, they're, they're out there chasing demons and they're exercising their car when it breaks down. And, you know, it's everywhere. They're out there doing it all. And then you have the vast majority of us Christians that, that are kind of in the middle. We, we know we hear warfare and we hear spiritual battle, but, but we really don't know what it's about. And there's a whole lot of Christians that think if we just act like it doesn't exist, maybe it'll go away. If we just act like maybe there isn't a part for me, then I can just kind of slide by and squeak in. And we miss out on what God's calling us to. And sadly, we learned a couple of weeks ago that this is a real battle and it's a real war. And everyone that calls himself a Christ follower is a part of it. And if you're not fighting, you are very quickly going to become a casualty. And it's not just a battle for the souls of men. It's a battle for our marriages. And it's a battle for our homes. And it's a battle for our children. And it's a battle for our communities. It's a battle for our churches. And and it's not enough just to pray. It's not enough just to talk about it. It's not enough just to look at some of these stories. God calls now time for boots on the ground. You see, it's time for believers to not only talk about battle, but get into that battle. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to outline what the role of a Christian is. What are yours and my responsibility when it comes to spiritual warfare? What are, what's expected of us from God? If we are called to be a part of this battle, then what do I need to do? And so I want you to look with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And we've been walking through Ephesians and we looked at this same passage. A couple of weeks ago if you have your Bible look at it uh, in the order of service you can see the uh, message Bible translation that's in there but you can follow along either way. Uh, now as you're turning there remember that, that Paul puts this at the end of his book because he's been giving us all these promises and then he's been encouraging us to walk a life filled with the Holy Spirit to allow the Holy Spirit to be in control of every area of our life. And Paul knows that once you start doing that, once you start taking this book and applying it and living it and praying and asking God to, to bless you and begin to take back your marriage from the curse of sin, begin to take back your family, begin to take back your home, begin to become the church that God's called us to, Paul knows that you are putting a target on yourself. Ready to be attacked. And two weeks ago we learned the nature of that battle. And, and we also talked about our enemy. Not just the devil, but the world and the principles of the world. And then our old nature that is our enemy that we war against and, and we fight against. If you miss that, go catch up on our podcast page. Because it sets kind of a foundation for this, this week and then next week. But this morning I want to focus in the same passage, but more in the line of where you and I come in. So Ephesians chapter 6 starting in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and of His mighty power. Now, remember that our strength doesn't come from our knowledge. And our strength doesn't come from our understanding. This morning, you can take all the notes that you want. Next week, we're going to talk about the armor of God. And you can take all the notes about the armor. You can know everything there is to know about how to apply the armor to your life. And how to spiritually pray for your family. But if you're doing it in your own strength, it's useless. Because he says right here the battle is not only not ours, but the strength to fight the battle is God's. And the only way we can do it is in his mighty power. And you get his mighty power by what? Ephesians 5.18 told us being filled with the Holy Spirit. Letting the Holy Spirit have every area of your life. Now next week when we talk about the armor of God, so many people get so excited about putting on the armor of God, they don't put on the under armor. You see, the Bible says we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And if we don't have Christ's power and Christ's strength before we try to put on the armor, it's useless. It has no power and no purpose. And in the same way, if you don't give the Holy Spirit every area of your life, if you hold some area back, if you hold something back, and you begin to go into battle for God, that area that you've held back is going to become your biggest hindrance. It's going to become your biggest weakness. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a problem with your mind, uh, you have a problem with things that you see and, and lust of the flesh maybe and lust of the eyes and, and, and you've given God every area of your life and, and you've held that one back. That's one that's your private battle and we talked about closet sins last year and you keep it locked up. Nobody knows but you but it's still a battle but you haven't turned it over to the Holy Spirit. You haven't freely given You may have said, God I'm tired of this, I'm tired of this fight, I'm tired of this battle but you still haven't gotten rid of it. When you begin to go into battle, you may be geared up and armored up and ready to fight. You go into battle and that area is still not submitted to God. That is going to become the very area where Satan is going to attack you. Because you see, that very area, your weakness all of a sudden will begin to creep into the other areas. That's why he says, you understand it's not in your strength. It is in the strength of the Lord. We'll keep reading. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now, I I want you to think about our role in this battle. Our responsibility, now if I was to ask you, if I was to pass out a sheet of paper and have you write down, what do you think the Christian's job is? Most of you in this room would say, well, we're supposed to, you know, go out and attack the devil. And we're supposed to go out and, you know, attack demons. And we're supposed to, you know, go out and charge. There's nothing in the New Testament that tells the believer we're supposed to attack. Nothing in the New Testament that tells the believer you're supposed to go and and charge. Matter of fact, there's nothing in the New Testament that tells you you have the authority to do that. The only authority to do that comes from Jesus Christ. Even the angel Gabriel, when he was confronting the demons, he had to ask permission from God to get the authority to be able to attack. See, that's not our role. So what is our role? Well, I've identified three things in the New Testament that I think fits into our responsibility when it comes to spiritual warfare. Listen to the first of these. This comes from Paul's encouragement to his, uh, his young protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. He says, You need to endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, for no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He only wants to please his commanding officer. You see, the first role of a believer that's ready to go into battle is to be willing to endure hardship, to be willing to face difficulty. Now, I know for many people that sounds exactly the opposite of what you hear preached from many pulpits and from many TV preachers when you turn on TV. Because you see, so many people tell you that if you just come to Jesus, everything will be roses and cake, right? I mean, it's just going to be come to Jesus and we're going to sing Kumbaya and we're going to get excited and goosebumps and we'll walk out of here and everything's good and you're going to have a great week. That's not scriptural. It's not biblical because, you see, matter of fact, God never says He will deliver us from our circumstances or our situations. So when we become Christians, we still have to deal with the mess that is this world. We live in a sinful, messed up world. So we're still going to face disease and we're still going to face tragedies and we're still going to face difficulties. He didn't tell us he was going to deliver us from that. He told us he was going to give us the power to overcome our circumstances. And then when you become a Christian, you add extra difficulties because the Bible teaches us that when you claim the name Jesus Christ, you're going to face hardships simply for that reason. Now, I know that doesn't sound like what, what everyone else is saying, but the Bible is clear when Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, it's going to cost you something. You've got to be willing to take up your cross. You've got to be willing to live with sacrifice. You've got to be li- willing to live with persecution. And if you think you can live the Christ life filled with the Holy Spirit without hardship, you're deceiving yourself. You're fooling yourself. You are going to face difficulties. You are going to face persecution. Now I know here in America, we don't face the persecution that people are facing all around the world. But we will. And we need to be prepared. We need to be ready and willing to understand that there is coming a day when you claim the name Jesus Christ. When you stand up for the truth of the word of God. You will be persecuted. And that's nothing new. You understand, in Jesus' day, when Paul wrote this, when they claimed the name Jesus Christ, when they said, I am a Christian, they couldn't get jobs. Many of them went hungry because they wouldn't hire Christians. Then they were persecuted. Then they became the scapegoats for every problem that took place in the nation. In, the, in, in Rome, anytime something happened, whose fault was it? Well, it was Christians. Guess what's happening in America today? Whenever you hear somebody talk about the group that is closed-minded and bigoted and the problems and holding us back as a nation, who is it? It's the Christians. There's coming a day when you and I are going to face opposition. He says the way that you endure this hardship is, he says, don't get involved in civilian affairs. That's what Paul tells him. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you're a soldier on the front line, You can't be an effective soldier if you're worried more about how much your phone bill is back in the States, can you? If you're worried about what's going on at home, you can't be a soldier because you've got to be focused. And what Paul is telling us is that for us to be willing to endure hardship, we have got to be focused. Jesus talks about three guys that were not focused, that were not ready to follow, that were not ready to endure hardship in Luke chapter 9. You might remember the story. Listen, it sounds familiar to many of you. Luke chapter 9. As they were walking along a road, a man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said this, foxes have holes, birds have the air nest, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Never mentioned again, the guy walks away. Why? Because he was looking for comfort. He said, I'll follow you as long as it's easy. I'll follow you as long as I get something out of it. The second guy came to Jesus and said, Jesus looked at him, he said, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, Lord first let me go bury my father. That sounds like a, you know, a nice request, I'll follow you, let me bury my father. That wasn't the issue. See, the issue is his father wasn't dead yet. He said, basically saying, can you wait, my dad's going to die, I'm going to get an inheritance, and then I'll follow you. See, so many people today say, Christ, I'll follow you, but first... Let me get out of high school. Let me get out of college. Let me get a real job. Let me get the kids out of the house. Let let me get, wait till the kids are are going to school. Wait, let me wait to this, wait to that. Jesus turned around, left the man standing there because he wasn't willing to endure hardship. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service. What was he telling him? He said, either you follow me with everything or you don't follow me at all. You see if you're only halfway in the moment that hardships begin to come you're going to fade away. To be able to focus on what God's calling us to you've got to be willing to follow regardless of the cost. If it costs me my friendships if it costs me my popularity if it costs me my reputation if it costs me everything that I have I will still follow. See it's a fun song to sing Right? It's not real fun on Monday and Tuesday when you're sitting alone at the cafeteria. When you can't pay the bills because you turned down a job because it would have compromised your values. See, what he's saying is you've got to be willing to endure hardship. You know another way that we get involved in civilian affairs? We fight the wrong enemy. We learn in this battle that our enemy is not flesh and blood. We don't fight people, but yet we let people get us involved in their arguments and their fights, and it takes us off the front lines from who we're supposed to be fighting. Somebody does something to us. Somebody doesn't do what we want. Somebody hurts our feelings. And so instead of being able to press on and follow what God, we let that person distract us. We let that person sidetrack us. And we end up over here having our little pity party with a big target on our back instead of being what God's called us to be and doing what God called us to do. And another way is that we take up other people's offense. It's one of the greatest problems in the church. One of the devil's greatest tools. Somebody else gets mad or angry because somebody does something to them and instead of letting them deal with it, we want to jump in and solve it all. We want to jump, I can't believe so-and-so did that to them. I'm going to make sure to take care. And we get more upset about it than the person who had it done to them. And all along we are riled up and we're fighting one another when our enemy is somewhere else. He says, don't get involved in civilian affairs. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get distracted. You've got to be willing to pay the price regardless. Jesus himself said this, John 15, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than the master. They persecuted me. They will persecute you also. If you obey my teaching, they will follow you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. How in the world do we think we can get out from less than what Jesus had? You see, there's an easy way to avoid hardship. Just don't follow Christ. Just, just keep playing church. Just keep pretending. It'll be miserable, but you won't have to face hardship. Now, there's a, there's a whole gospel out there. It's being preached in America today. It's a false gospel. It's unbiblical. It's, some people call it the prosperity gospel. It tells you that if you just follow Jesus, then, then you'll have wealth and you'll have stuff. And you'll be blessed beyond measure. You won't get sick. Listen, that's not a gospel that Jesus preached. We just found Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself and come. You're going to face hardships. You're going to face difficulties. See, that gospel won't preach. That, that only preaches in first world countries. It only preaches in America, really. You can't preach that prosperity gospel to those that are losing their house in Syria who have had their families killed simply because they were Christians. You can't go over there and say, listen, if you'll just follow, if you'll just love Jesus, all these problems will go away. Because that's not the reality. Because you know where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was in jail under a death sentence. You don't hear Paul saying, well, I'm just going to claim truth. I'm just going to claim getting out of this jail. No, what did Paul do? He said, I'm going to sit here for the cause of Jesus Christ and do everything I can in spite of my circumstances. The big phrase that I hear people use, and I don't have any problem with it, but I want you to understand. People all the time I hear in that group say, well, how are you? Well, I'm blessed and highly favored. You understand, I believe that. But I believe blessed and highly favored has nothing to do with how well you are. Or the size of your checkbook. Has nothing to do with your circumstance. Yes, I am blessed and highly favored. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are blessed and highly favored. But you can be sitting in a cancer ward, dying in your last breath, and you're still blessed and highly favored. You can be living on the street, bankrupt and you're still blessed and highly favored because you're blessed and highly favored not because what your checkbook says or your uh, doctor's report says. You're blessed and highly favored because you're a child of the king. The gospel teaches us that we are going to face difficulty and we are going to face hardship. We need to expect it, but the promise is that when we face it, we're never alone because we don't face it alone. Because Jesus Christ who faced it first walks with us. We also have the church. We face it with one another. How in the world did the Chinese church, did the Russian church, did the Vietnamese church, how did they grow so rapidly? The South Korean church. During those times of persecution when they took all their Bibles away and they were beaten and many of them killed, when they would drag preachers out of their homes and they would kill them in front of the rest of the congregation. How did those churches thrive? Because they had one another because they recognize that no matter what goes on, we are in this together, we are in for a battle. You see, if we are going to be called to spiritual warfare, we need to recognize that we need to be willing to endure hardships. Second thing that he tells Timothy is this. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you would fight the good fight. Now, you hear a lot of people talk about fighting the good fight. Matter of fact, Timothy, Paul uses it again at the end of the letter. He says, I fought the good fight. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And I hear a lot of people say, well, he fought the good fight. Fighting the good fight has nothing to do with getting to the finish line. You understand that? Just squeaking across is not fighting the good fight. See, we are called to endure hardship, but we're also called to fight the good fight. Well, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, he tells us. Fight the good fight, verse 19 of 1 Timothy 1, which means holding on to the faith and having a good conscience, because some have rejected these and they have shipwrecked their faith. What does it mean to fight the good fight? It means to hold on to the faith. He didn't say anything in there about attacking. He didn't say anything about charging. He said stand up for the faith, the truth of the Word of God. Fighting the good fight, that word fight there means it's a constant struggle. It means you're going to fight outside and inside your old self and, and, and your reasoning and all of those things are going to battle against you. The outside world is going to come against you, but you are called to fight the good fight. He calls it later to contend for the faith. What does it mean to contend for the faith? It means that you don't compromise. It means that you don't, you don't go back on what you believe. You stand up for truth. And you don't have to stand up for truth by beating people in the head. You don't have to stand up for truth by condemning everybody around you. You can stand up for the truth in love and in grace and in mercy. But we still are called to stand up for the truth. The moment that we begin to try to cover over the truth and the moment that we begin to try to water down the truth for the sake of having crowds or for the sake of being accepted by our community or for the sake of being accepted by our culture, we have compromised. We are no longer fighting the good fight. See, it's easy to go along to get along, but that's not what Jesus called us to. You see, you need to understand that the gospel is offensive to those that are living in sin. People say, I... I want to stand up for Christ, but I just don't want to offend anybody. Listen, you can just read this in a smile on your face, in the sweetest tone that you know, and it's going to offend people. Why? Because it's the truth of the Word of God, and it comes against our lives. Listen, it's offensive to me. I read things all the time and I say, God, really, you can't be telling me that I've got to do this because that goes against that flesh, and my old nature says, But I want to do it, it's fun, and I want to find somebody that's going to stand up in front of me and say, It's okay, this doesn't mean what it says it means. But that's not what God calls His Christians to. He tells us that we have got to contend for the faith. That means in the public arena, doesn't mean you have to stand up and preach. It means you just speak up for the truth. And not allow the truth to be compromised. Not allow the truth to be trampled over. You and I are called to contend. He says, hold to the faith. He said, others have washed it away. They've compromised. And he calls it a shipwreck of their faith. But not only do we need to hold on to the faith, he said, but also have a good conscience. You know what that means? That means to try to not just talk about it, but to live it, to let it come out of our lives, to pursue holiness. So you and I are called to be different. Part of fighting the good fight is to be willing to endure hardship, to be willing to cut our ties with what the world says, what the world thinks of me, and be willing to stand up for the truth of the Word of God, but not just stand up for it, live it out. doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that I'm pursuing to be more like Christ every day, pursuing holiness. Chasing after God, trying to let God have more of me, trying to let God have more of my relationships, more of my friendships, more of my public life. It's what it means to live with a good conscience. It's what it means to fight. It's an ongoing, everyday fight. We're called to endure hardship. We're called to fight the good fight. And then the last thing, and it comes from our passage. matter of fact, he says it five times in seven verses you see it back in Ephesians chapter 6? Stand against the devil's schemes. Stand your ground. After you've done everything, stand. Stand firm. See, you know, if you go to a Christian bookstore and you go look at the spiritual warfare sections, you're going to find a big section. It's popular. You know why it's popular? Because everyone loves to talk about the mystical stuff. Man, how do I, how do I cast out demons? Are demons real? Demons are real. People are possessed. I've been in in third world countries. I've been in South America. I've seen things that I didn't believe. That I was naive to. I've seen people. But that's not what spiritual warfare is about. There are people that are called to go and preach the gospel and set the captives free. You and I are called to do that. But in the context of our life, it's not about the mystical. It's about enduring hardship. It's about contending for the faith. See, that doesn't sound glamorous, does it? You start saying, what has God called you to? What's your role? Well, your role is to be willing to face everything that comes your way and stand strong. He uses this word stand, and he's not the only one that uses it. Peter uses it in our famous passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says this, Be self-controlled and alert, for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. That word there, the same word used in Ephesians 6, means to take a firm stand against anything that comes against you. See, God doesn't call us to charge. None of those weapons we're going to talk about next week, they're not ready for you to charge. He calls us to stick our feet in the ground and say, this is mine. This is where God's planted me. I'm going to stand, and you're not backing me off. I'm not going to compromise. Because you see, what happens when you stand is all of a sudden you become a light on a hill. Because there are people all around you. There are people in your family. There are people at your school. There are people at your workplace that are looking for truth. They're looking for something that's real. So many of them have tried everything. The Bible says all of us are created with this empty hole in our hearts. An empty hole in our spirits that was created for God to live. We have a whole world around us like many of us that went out and tries to fill that hole with everything else. Try to fill it with relationships. Listen, a relationship with a boy or girl is never going to fill that emptiness. We try to fill it with alcohol. We try to fill it with drugs. We try to fill it with our bank accounts. We try to fill it with our self-esteem. We try to fill it with all these things. and, And they just come up short. It never has enough to get filled. You always want more. That's why you see these people that have everything in the world, that have all the money, that have all the riches, have the biggest homes, have all these relationships, and they're empty and they're miserable. Why? Because it was only created for one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And so there are people around you. They can act like they're not, but they're watching you. And they're looking for somebody that believes that the only thing that feels that is Jesus Christ. And you stand strong, and everyone else may laugh at you, but you don't compromise. You're not hateful. You're not judgmental. You're not preachy. You're loving and grace-filled, but you don't compromise. And no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody does, this is what God's called me to do. Stand strong. Stand firm. You become a refuge to a hurt and dying world around you. See, that's your role. And as you're standing strong and people throw things at you, you contend for the faith. And that's where we're going to get into the armor next week. But you also are willing to say, no matter what you got, you give me your best world. I'm standing strong. And the only way I can do that is with God being the source of my strength. That's the whole picture. That's the role. You and I need to understand there's a war going on. It's a real war. It's a battle for our homes. It's a battle for our relationships. It's a battle for your kids and your grandkids and for our communities and for our churches. And we are called to be a part of that battle. But you cannot be effective if you're not willing to endure, if you're not willing to stand, if you're not willing to contend for the faith. Fight the good fight. One of the saddest stories in the Bible is the story of David. Because David was a man after God's own heart. David had it all. David loved God with everything that he had. The greatest songs that are written in the Old Testament are David's songs. Songs of worship, songs of hope, songs of victory. But there were two great, huge failures in David's life. Do you know when those two failures happened? Both of them happened when the nation of Israel was at war and he was supposed to be at war, but instead of being at war, instead of being at battle, he had taken the day off. Both of them. The first one most of us know. He was supposed to be out fighting. The king's role was to be leading the army. He decided to take some time off. He stayed back in Jerusalem. He's lounging around on his roof. He looks to the neighbor's roof and there's a woman that's out there sunbathing. And he decides that he has to have her. And you know the results. They end up committing adultery. Then he ends up murdering her husband. And the consequences of that are the child is dead. And David's family is destroyed. You see, David's family paid the price because David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. David wasn't out willing to contend for the faith and fighting. He decided he was going to take a day off and his family paid the price. Second time. They're out fighting the Philistines in 1 Chronicles 20. And David says, I'm going to stay back. I'm a little tired. And while he's sitting up in the castle, he begins to think, you know, I've got the greatest kingdom in all of Israel. I've got a, we need to count how many people are in my kingdom. God said, don't count them. I want you to trust me, not your numbers. David said, no, I think I need to count because I want everyone to know just how big we are. So David begins to count. And the Bible says that God cursed the nation of Israel because David went out counting. 70,000 men of Israel were killed by a plague because David decided that he knew better than God. You know why it happened? Because David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing and he wasn't where he was supposed to be. See, listen, I'm not trying to scare you, I'm not trying to throw threats your way, but I'm telling you, we're in a war. And you're in a battle. You can bury your head in the sand and act like it doesn't exist. But in doing so, the consequences are grave. Or, you can go to the Holy Spirit this morning and submit yourself to Him and say, clothe me in your righteousness. Take every part of me. I'm ready to fight. Jesus says, will you follow me? To follow Him means you're in a war. The war's been won. But the enemy still fights. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And God, we ask this morning that those words would be more than words as they speak to our heart. That those words would be truth. And that God, we would allow them to penetrate our hearts. Father, there are so many believers that are casualties of this spiritual warfare. Teenagers and college students and young adults and senior adults and families that have been destroyed, all because we thought we knew better, all because we decided to take a day off or a month off or a year off and uh, bury our head in the sand. We decided that we knew more than the Word of God. Father, forgive us. God, we sang it and you promised us that we can overcome. And so, no matter what we're facing today, no matter what the past has held, no matter what the devil lies to us about, that this morning we are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Father, this morning we stand. God, share with these young people if it's just one of them that's willing to stand, that can change a school. Just one willing to stand can change a college. Just one willing to stand can change a community, a workplace. But you got to have one. You got one that says I'm willing to endure whatever the world throws at me. I'm willing to endure whatever comes my way. I'm willing to stand. I'm willing to trust you, God. God, let that be our declaration this morning. God, it's not until we submit ourselves to you that we can get the armor of God that gives us the ability. So this morning we come submitting. Laying out our hearts, asking you to empower us. You know the battles that these people in this room are facing. Some, it's health battles. Some, it's family battles. Some, it's decade and generational battles. Some, it's battles within themselves, past actions and anger and bitterness and hurt. Some have been on the sidelines and they've missed the battle and they're trying to catch up. God, I pray you'd touch every heart this morning. Speak to every spirit. Let us walk in you. In your name. To stand and worship with us as we declare I'll stand so I'll stand so I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all I'll stand my soul you